Hello everyone and welcome to the Loopcast. I'm Chelsea Damon and today we have a really exciting show that we're bringing you and I'm personally excited about this because our guest is Nate Rosenblatt and he had a recent paper that came out on July 20th which was published with New America and that's 2016 in case you're listening to this further in another year and the title of the paper is All Jihad is Local, What ISIS's Files Tell Us About Foreign Fighters. And I really feel like this study takes what we know of foreign fighters and flips it upside down and makes us rethink what our thinking is on foreign fighters and also opens discussion on foreign fighters and really just gives us amazing data that wasn't available before. So. To start off with, I want to thank you, Nate, for coming on the show and sharing your information and wisdom on this topic. Thanks, Chelsea. I'm happy to join you. For our listeners, Nate is an analyst with nearly a decade of field research that is based in the Middle East, and he has an MSc, or actually he's a student of MS, an MSc in social anthropology at Oxford University, so he is in the field, he's had field experience, and he's in the academic world, so a very well-rounded researcher. So Nate, why don't we start off with by discussing, first of all, how long did this study take? Because there's a lot of information and a lot of data packed into this study. So thanks, Chelsea. It, I, I sort of kept track of how many hours I was spending on it because it was such a time-intensive effort to take what are effectively individual PowerPoint slide files for each foreign fighter that the ISIS administrators who recorded and registered new foreign fighter joiners saved in sort of a bit of a haphazard way in a bunch of different folders. So I essentially had to do a lot of deduplication and then just take what was in PowerPoint slides and put them into an Excel spreadsheet where we could do some more quantitatively oriented assessments. So in all, it took, I would say, about 300 hours of work. That's a lot of hours. <laughs> yeah. Not... It took... Oh, go ahead. No, it, did, it, it took a long time, but I think the information was so rich that it made the time worth it, I think, because unlike in previous um, foreign fighter leaks um, in groups like ISIS, like the Sinjar papers, was about 600 files. And this is almost 3,600 fighters, so orders of magnitude greater and incredibly rich information in these registration forms. They included things like uh, personal information like your name and hometown, also included background about your profession, education, religious knowledge, and other incredible detail that the fighters provided that wasn't included in the study and I'm hoping will be included in future work, which were the fighters had to list who was their sponsor to join ISIS. So theoretically, every fighter needed someone to sponsor them to join the group, uh, as well as things like emergency points of contact. Often it was that ISIS would contact these uh, friends or family and there were phone numbers included in the forms if and when these fighters were killed. Um, and so sometimes you had fighters say, this is my parents' phone number. Tell them I died in a car accident in Turkey, for example. But so the data was incredibly rich. So it felt like that time was really worth it when it came down to advancing our understanding of the phenomenon of foreign fighters. And that's what I was going to say, that it 
the 300 hours or more are well worth it from the findings you've come up with and, and the documentation that you've gained from these ISIS documents. So maybe for our listeners that might not know the background of these documents, how did you get a hold of this information? Where were the documents found or leaked, so to speak? Sure. So there was, in the spring of this year, uh, a defected ISIS fighter fled Raqqa into Turkey and took with him what he reported to have been about 20,000 files with foreign fighter registration forms on them. And he handed them over to several journalists, as well as several intelligence agencies. And having worked on Syria for uh, a few years, um, between 2012 and 2014, I had some contacts there who knew this individual and helped provision the registration forms for me. Um, they did a lot of the deduplication of this 20,000 down to about 4,000 foreign fighter registration forms. So a lot of the effort goes to them, and of course they don't get named in these reports um, for obvious security reasons, but I do want to thank them for their effort. Um, but so the registration forms themselves essentially were time-specific and geographic-specific. And it's important to note that because a lot of parts of the foreign fighter phenomenon in general are missing in this story. So it's important to note what these documents say, but also what they don't say. So the forms were recorded between mid-2013 and about September of 2014. They are registration forms of new joiners of ISIS, by ISIS administrators, so there's a watermark on the form that says, I think the translation is something like the General Administ Border Administration for ISIS. Um, and this border was almost completely exclusively crossing from Turkey into Syria. So you didn't have any foreign fighters registering really in Iraq or fighters who were crossing into Syria from Iraq or Lebanon or Jordan. Um, and these were predominantly foreign, not Iraqi and Syrian. Com together, the Iraqi and Syrian foreign fighters comprised about 200 or fewer than 200 of the 3,580 fighters I recorded in the sample. So I think it's important to note all of those things. Um, and so before we get to the methodology of what we did with it, I think it's really important to highlight a few caveats um, so that we can frame the discussion. One is that these data are not representative. They're in a time and geographic specific. It's volunteered information by the fighters themselves, for the most part. So people were asked what kind of education they had, what kind of professional background they had. This is information that these fighters themselves provided. Uh, third, it's ISIS only. Um, so, you know, for example, there were no Nigerians in the sample. There, were no, there was no one from Mali. There were only about seven uh, individuals who reported residents in Pakistan. And these countries also face violent Islamic extremist threats, but um, these countries were not almost at all represented in these data. And then I think the last thing I would just highlight is just that um, all of this is, all the conclusions that we draw from this aren't necessarily final, final. I think they're just suggestions about what we think we know about these areas. So I think the purpose of the study in general was to say, where is this problem a big problem? And then what might be the story in those high-priority areas? And I think that's a very important thing to highlight. Of course, looking at 
the debate and the, the, the talk on foreign fighters, the U.S. media, for one, as well as other European outlets, they tend to give a lot of airtime, and there's a lot of stories and a lot of articles and a lot of interviews from individuals from European countries, but foreign fighters are not just coming from European countries, and there are a lot of areas and regions that they're coming from that are just not getting as much attention. So you've got all this data that you've collected. From there, what did you do with it? Why don't you describe your methodology and, and how you disseminated this info? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, I think basically, you know, from having worked in the region for a long time, I think one of the things that I've always sort of emphasized in is the importance of focusing on the local dynamics to understand the bigger problem and to sort of break down these big problems of, you know, conflict in Syria or the phenomenon of foreign fighters and violent Islamic movements into local digestible sort of pieces. And I think from that viewpoint, I sort of looked at this data and said, this is the first opportunity that we can start to do a quantitative study of the subnational origins of these fighters. So how local can we get these origins? So in the registration forms, one of the questions these fighters are asked is, what's your nationality? And then where do you come from? What's your home residence? And about 90% of the sample, we could tag or assign a geographic location that essentially represented the largest subnational administrative district. So in simple terms, basically, we could identify where they came from. In the United States, it would be in states. In Iraq, for example, it would be governorates. In other countries, it might be provinces. So we broke it down first to say, where are these, where provinces or states or governorates are these fighters coming from? And then once we had that list, again, it was about 90% of the sample we could assign uh, this, this, we'll call it region. From there, what we did was we said, okay, how do we develop an understanding of the priorities? Where are the most important provinces that we need to focus on? So from a provincial raw top five, we found that Riyadh, Qasim in Saudi Arabia, Tunis, Tunisia, Mecca, and Xinjiang province in China were the top five. But these aren't indexed to the population size or even the Muslim population size of the province. So what we did was we divided up these raw numbers into two parts. The first was indexed to local Muslim population. Um, and that helped us get a really good rate of joiners per 100,000 local Muslim residents. Uh, that's important because, for example, foreign fighters coming from Paris, you know, when Paris has about 10 to 15 percent of a Muslim population, we would want to index that accurately to that Muslim population since almost every foreign fighter coming to join ISIS is, is religiously affiliated to, to, to the Islamic religion. Of course, that's a problematic piece, and we can talk about it, Chelsea, if you're interested. But anyway, we indexed it to the uh, proportion of the provincial Muslim population, and in that we found um, a ranking of, let's say, we list in the report top 20 but in the study, we look at three of the top six provinces. One of the t number one province in the study was Derna in eastern Libya. The next one was Kibli 
which is in the Tunisian hinterland, close to a famous province in Tunisia called Sidi Bouzaid, which was famous in December of 2010 because the fruit vendor Mohamed Bouazizi lighted himself on fire and many people start from that moment as the beginning of the Arab Spring. So a, lot, a very strong grievance narrative, socioeconomic grievance narrative there. And then the third out of the top 10 we looked at was Qasim in Saudi Arabia, which is the Nejdi heartland of Saudi Arabia. A lot of the Wahhabi proselytizers that helped form the modern Saudi state came from this province. So that was the index, we'll call it index by volume, so proportion of Muslim population. The second way we divided it up was as a proportion of the total number of fighters from a given country. And the reason we did that was we said, okay, we've identified by volume what are the major sort of threats, uh, the sort of large volume generators of foreign fighters, let's say. But which ones would specific countries consider to be problems in in their own sort of population of foreign fighters joining ISIS. And there we found a slightly different set of, of, um, of provinces. In the top five included three that we studied, which was Xinjiang province in western China, the northern governorate of Lebanon, essentially Tripoli and its surroundings in north Lebanon. And then number four was Muharraq, which is a province in the Sunni heartland of uh, Shia-majority Arabian Gulf country, Bahrain. So we broke it down in those two ways, and the idea was to develop a list of sort of high-priority origin provinces of fighters who were joining ISIS during that period of time. And in the study, you also have data on topics such as marital status, average age, level of schooling, level of religious schooling, and so forth. And you have really great graphs in me, the study as well. I will just put that out there. (laughs) Really good. Um, But why don't we look at these topics and maybe describe for us who you could maybe consider an average foreign fighter from what you found. Sure, Chelsea. I think um, the average fighter, we sort of looked at the whole um, data set and tried to get a sense for the average picture of the of a fighter who was joining ISIS during this time. And the average age was about 26 or 27 years old at the point of their joining with a standard deviation of about seven years. So the large range basically between 20 and 35. Um, about 60% of the fighters were single. Um, about a third of them had a high school education or equivalent degree. Um, more than half the fighters self-reported to have a basic knowledge of uh, religion, and we can talk a bit about why that might be problematic if you're interested. A third of them, actually about a half of the full fighting force, were either sort of blue-collar workers like mechanics um, or who were had this sort of professional background of an unskilled laborer, uh, like a painter or construction worker or something like that. Um, and they weren't very well-traveled. About half the fighters had either traveled to one or fewer foreign countries. But what was also interesting is that they were asked about their jihadi experience, and more than 80% said they had never fought in a previous jihad, so Afghanistan, or also included in that was with another uh, militia in Syria, like Jabhat al-Nusra or Ahrar Sham show up in the data set. But I think what's really important to mention here is that um, we can't, it's not helpful to aggregate 
these kinds of socioeconomic information to a overall global average. I think what this report first demonstrates is the geographic and demographic and socioeconomic diversity of the foreign fighters who join ISIS. Um, but I think the reason why it's really important to focus on the local origins of these fighters is that instead of saying, well, this fighting, all these foreign fighters, it's so diverse, they come from everywhere, they have a broad background, they either travel a lot or don't travel, they have a university education or they don't, it's much more helpful to focus on these local origins. And I think there we can see a clearer picture uh, of what these foreign fighters generally look like. Um, and I'll give you a few examples. In the study, we look at, um, let's say, Xinjiang province in western China. And there, the typology of a fighter from uh, western China sort of typifies a, a sort of a standard rural poor type of individual. So these people have large families. They have very low levels of education. None of the 118 fighters from that province in the sample reported any college education. Very low jobs, essentially the, the, the work experience of a construction worker. Um, and traveled very infrequently. And for actually most fighters coming from Xinjiang province, the travel to ISIS territory via Turkey represented the furthest that pretty much any of them had traveled from home. So that's a pretty clear uh, typology. And then we can start to make some interesting conclusions uh, from that data set. And so one of the things I mentioned in the report is that it appears that the fighters from this province are considering moving to ISIS territory as either a long-term or even possibly a permanent move from home. I mean, the travel to uh, ISIS territory represents a long distance, so there's an economic and psychological cost to traveling. A lot of them traveled with their families, much more so than the normal data set. And um, actually what was really interesting about that sample was almost three-quarters of them in the sample, which lasts, the sample is mid-2013 to September 2014, so that's a, that's a pretty, you know, more than a year. But almost three-quarters of the fighters from Western China joined ISIS, registered as joining ISIS, after Mosul fell at the beginning of June. So a really high proportion in June and July and August and into September. So all of that suggests to me that they're looking at ISIS potentially as an alternative state. Now, uh, one of the things that was found that I would just add is that about 15% of the fighters um, reported to sign up uh, to be suicide bombers. Now, we don't know whether they asked to be suicide bombers or the enumerator actually wrote them down and assigned them this role. But it suggests further that these fighters aren't planning to return home. Whereas, if you compare those fighters from China to ones from, let's say, Muharraq in Bahrain, the Sunni heartland of Bahrain, the sample is very different. Uh, I think the, the fighters from the Gulf in general represent a much, much richer sort of socioeconomic background than you would see in a place like Western China. They're much younger. The average fighter from Bahrain was about 19 or 20 at the time of their joining. They traveled a lot. Uh, they had a decent education in comparison to the other fighters in the sample. And other uh, indicators suggest that these fighters aren't necessarily considering a move to ISIS territory as permanent. 
their socioeconomic background and their travel history suggests this might be another aspect of uh, sort of an adventuristic profile. Of course, we know from Bahrain and in the Gulf in general, there is a very strong narrative of sectarianism that motivates a lot of fighters too. And that's contextual, but I think the purpose of this sort of focus on the local is to not only look at these data from the registration forms, but then we can start to bring in some contextual evidence to enrich the picture of what these fighters look like where and where they come from. And I think what you just mentioned is very important. And for anyone that has been following this discussion on foreign fighters, we have heard this idea of, yes, it is a younger group that tends to join. You know, there tends to be this idea of, adventurism they're going for the adventure and i mean some of the the data that you have could suggest that however you can't put each individual in a nice wrapped up box and as you've shown with your research different regions have very different factors that could have someone decide that okay i'm gonna go to syria iraq and and either permanently live in, in the Islamic State, or this is my adventure if I'm from Bahrain, or whatever the local circumstances are helping drive that individual's decision. Yeah, I think that's totally right. And I would just add two things. Uh, you know, one is that I think the real value in this study is in its rankings. So we list the top 20 pro origin provinces of foreign fighters by volume. So indexed to the local Muslim population and as a proportion of the total number of fighters coming from a given country. And I think my hope is that a lot of people are able to read this and say, okay, well, in a few of these provinces, you know, Nate has said what he thinks there might what, what he thinks might be the motivations of these fighters. But there's so much more research that can be done to provide greater sort of quantitative and also qualitative uh, information to enrich our understanding of the phenomenon in these local areas. Uh, and the second thing I would say is that my hope in, in this is also to do a follow-on study to compare the socioeconomic conditions of fighters from a given country to the broader socioeconomic picture of residents in that given province, too. And I think that's sort of the next step in this research. Ooh, I look forward to that. So <laughs> you, yeah, I'm sure you know you need to get, get on the, the stick of... <laughs> Starting the research, it takes lots of time, but that will be very interesting and it will be great to add to what you already have with this paper and, you know, the greater discussion on foreign fighters. But you mentioned a little bit ago the concept of religious education or religious knowledge, and your findings suggested, I think it was about 55% only had a basic understanding of religion and 20% and moderate and 5% advanced, that, that's 5% is a very low number. And once again, in the debate, people tend to think, oh, this is all driven by religion. But what are your thoughts on this? Um, two, two thoughts come to mind. I think one is that I would just caution uh, listeners on drawing broader conclusions about this specific question because it's so relative. So it's a little bit more problematic than saying, how much schooling have you had? Because that can be a pretty, a fairly definitive answer. Either you went to high school or you, or you didn't. I mean, of course, you could make it up, but it's a pretty definitive thing. Whereas self-assessing your religious knowledge 
is much more relative. Um, and so, for example, if I were to stand in line to register as a new student at Al-Azhar University in Cairo, and they asked me what I would consider to be my level of religious knowledge, uh, basic, moderate, or advanced, I would say uh, extremely basic. But if I were sort of in a, let's say, because I've done some research on on the history of of Islamic thought, let's say I was in, you know, a coffee shop in in New Hampshire, and someone said, "How well would you assess your religious knowledge?" I would say moderate, maybe. So it's really it's really relative. So I think the, the I never really use that question to um, draw broader to lead and draw broader conclusions of, from that from that question. It was never a leading variable. Sometimes it would provide additional evidence. Let's say in Tunisia, for example, um, you know, 16 out of the 590 fighters from Tunisia had previous jihad experience, and only 15% of the entire sample from Tunisia reported to have anything more than a basic understanding of Islam. So those factors combined suggest to me that this idea of violent Islamic extremism might be newer to Tunisia than it would be in a place like Derna, where over half of the population of the sample reported previous jihad experience. But it never was a leading indicator. That would be my first point. The second thing I would say is, uh, and there's a lot of good literature on this, but Whereas with, um, uh, I think, sort of Salafist movements in general, sort of violent Islamic extremist movements and these purist movements, the barriers to entry in terms of religious knowledge of being such a scholar are also really low. There isn't that much of an expectation of a fighter to have a very uh, detailed knowledge of the religion and its tenets, whereas in traditional you know, Islamic scholarship, you're sort of asked to cite lots of sources and interpretations before you're allowed to sort of say, you know, what your version of, you know, your interpretation of what Islamic law might say on a certain issue. In Salafism and in a lot of the schools of thought that sort of violent Islamic extremists sort of adhered to, there is much less of a requirement of that interpretive knowledge, you sort of go to the Quran, it, the, the, the original source, and say what it says there. So you don't have to learn all of the sort of history of Islamic scholarship to be a, sort of an advanced sort of scholar on this. So I would say the barriers of entry in terms of what might consider to be smart enough about Islam aren't as high as they might otherwise be in other groups findings very much focus on paying attention to the individual regions and areas that certain fighters come from and taking that into consideration for their choice of joining ISIS, their choice of fighting, their choice of leaving their home country or town. But can we find any common threads within all the data and all the individuals you looked at? or maybe motivation and, and a choice to fight? Yeah, I I think more research is really required to make this finding definitive, but I would say one narrative sort of stretched across all six provinces that we really did a deep dive in 
and these six were in the top 10 if volume or proportion of provinces highlighted in the study. And in all six of those provinces, we found sort of a tense history of local federal grievances or a history of protests or separatist movements. So I think the story of tense local federal relations may be something that uh, combines a lot of the diversity of the provinces that we look at. But even though these provinces are diverse in terms of what the fighters look like and what their motivations might be, this tense relationship with the national or state uh, government institutions is a narrative that we see combining in a lot of them. So, for example, in Xinjiang province in western China, it, there's sort of in the Uyghur Muslim population in western China, there is a deeply repressed population. And let's say Chinese investments in programs like infrastructure developments like One Belt, One Road are improving the economic conditions in Western China, but are not involving these Uyghur populations. So these Uyghur populations are really left behind and they're not able to sort of demonstrate or uh, uh, sort of live their lives as they might normally by growing their beards or wearing headscarves. Of course, all religion isn't all religious expression in China is, is, is not allowed, but in that area, it's sort of much, much tenser than, than in other areas. And in Tunisia, I think you have this, this long history of sort of social and economic marginalization, particularly in the Tunisian hinterland. So Kibli was the number two province by volume. Sidi Bouzaid, which is next to Kibli, where Mohamed Bouazizi lit himself on fire in December 2010, is also in the top 10 by volume. So to me, it suggests there's also this frustration and marginalization from state institutions and economic opportunity. So a lot of the protests that have existed in the Tunisian hinterland is another theme there. Uh, and then in the Gulf, we look at a couple of provinces that are just very different from the ones in, let's say, Western China. In Qasim in Saudi Arabia and Muharraq in Bahrain, these two provinces sort of have traditionally been the backbone of the ruling families in Saudi Arabia and Bahrain. In Saudi Arabia, Qasim was sort of the major origin province for Wahhabi proselytizers, um, promoting this Salafist Wahhabi vision of the Saudi state in the early 1900s. And in, in Saudi Arabia, it, it seems like these residents in Qasim also are protesting the government, but they're protesting, let's say, government reform efforts. So there was a famous cleric from Qasim who was on the High Council for Religious Scholars in Saudi Arabia who was fired because he was publicly criticizing the ruling family for, uh, tr for its decree to integrate um, the King Abdullah University of Science and Technology uh, so men and women would be allowed in the same classroom. And as a result of some of these demonstrations and others, uh, the crown prince's face uh, in, on paper was burned on the streets in Kasim. So there's this history now that's growing of, of a sort of restiveness against the central government. And it's also true in Muharraq. And we can get into all these examples in more detail because the picture is obviously more complicated than my quick summaries of them. But in Muharraq, essentially, it was this center of the counter demonstrations against the Shia in Muharraq who were part of the uprising in 2011 against the ruling family. And so all the counter-demonstrations started there. And essentially, these tribal families from Muharraq, which have long been aligned with the ruling family, 
are becoming frustrated by the fact that the ruling family hasn't sort of provided them any payback, hasn't given anything back to these families who had demonstrated so vigorously in support of the ruling family. And because for other reasons, including the fact that Bahrain's break-even oil price is $120 a barrel, and crude oil today in July of 2016 is about $55, $60 a barrel, there isn't any indication that the ruling family is going to be able to afford to pay these families back for their support. So you have this increasingly sort of Salafist and sectarian-oriented grievance narrative that has existed in Muharraq for the past few years. In Lebanon, now we shift all the way to Lebanon, there is a sectarian aspect of the motivations, but the residents, the Sunni Muslim residents of North Lebanon, whereas in, in Bahrain or Saudi Arabia, there was this long-standing relationship with the central authority. In North Lebanon, the Sunnis of North Lebanon, as my colleague Faisal Itani says at the Atlantic Council, the Sunni Muslims of North Lebanon believe they have the rawest deal of any population in Lebanon. They're sort of not represented by the central government, nor are they represented by the Sunni elites, uh, such as the Hariri family and others in, Be in Beirut or elsewhere. So there you have this city, Tripoli, which since Lebanon was split from Syria, has, has been this slow decline. And you have this absence of the state in providing basic services and economic opportunities to residents. So traditionally, since the 80s, you've had this history of Salafist thought tied to a sort of separatism in North Lebanon. And I think there's a bit of that story there. But again, very tense local federal relationship in North Lebanon. And then finally, in Derna, all the way out in eastern Libya and North Africa, you have the same kind of grievance narrative. So in the late 90s, the entire city of Derna was put under curfew by Muammar Gaddafi for its support to the Islamic insurgency in Libya, then called the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group, LIFGI. And then in 2011, when the uprising started in Libya, uh, the fighters from Libya who had fought in foreign, former sort of jihad conflicts like in Afghanistan or elsewhere declared an Islamic caliphate in 2011. So you have this long-standing support in Derna for an Islamic insurgency and a separatist movement with an Islamic tinge in eastern Libya. So while the forms of all six of these provinces in terms of their tense local federal relationship take different forms, that story of frustration with state institutions is very present in all six of these provinces. Considering what you've just said, and further in the study, you mentioned policy recommendations. I guess, I guess that's the best way of putting it. So you've talked a lot about the local issues, which is a good background for the different regions that these individuals are coming to fight for ISIS. Looking at some of these grievances that you've just mentioned, what can the local community do, if even possible, to mitigate these grievances and potentially reduce the amount of individuals deciding to go fight for ISIS or who knows, maybe even another group in the near future? Well, I think the first thing that I would say in terms of sort of recommendations for policymakers is that we need to force policymakers to create stronger demand for this kind of subnational contextual knowledge. 
because only then can we design grassroots interventions that actually address the problem where it arises. I think too often the policy community runs after the solution before even diagnosing the problem. So you can say in a sort of pithy way, we have a counter-violent extremism program, but what we really need is a diagnosing violent extremism program. Um, because without having a really detailed knowledge of these sort of subnational drivers, these community drivers, and then understanding that the reality really is that all jihad is local. People are motivated by what happens in their community to then go out and wage jihad and create the kind of global chaos that we see in the news. But without a demand by policymakers for these kind of subnational uh, contextual uh, in, uh, studies, uh, I think we're going to continue to sort of generalize the problem in such a way that we either don't set ourselves up for success at best because we're not actually tailoring our uh, interventions in an effective way uh, to the audience that they need to be addressing. Or, at worst, we fail to understand the basic phenomenon of foreign fighters and violent Islamic extremism. I think one example that comes to mind is, you know, we've sent a lot of money and effort developing a CVE, a counter-violent extremism messaging center. It's called the Sawab Center in the UAE, uh, where you have moderate uh, religious scholars who are tweeting messages about how Islam is a religion of tolerance and peace. But those messages aren't reaching the Tunisian farmer who doesn't even have an elementary school degree and who wouldn't even know how to read what was in the Twitter account, never mind whether he had one or not. So I think the question of all jihad is local is sort of a pithy title, but it in underscores a really important point, which is that we have to spend more resources understanding this problem at a subnational level before we can design solutions to address them. And I would just finally add one more point to that, and that is to say that I think ISIS, especially in its uh, messaging campaign, understands this phenomenon that people are driven by grievances and frustrations or rivalries that exist in their home communities. And it uses those frustrations as the cornerstone of its success in recruiting foreign fighters. Um, you see that with the way they address fighters from Western China. So they'll show in a propaganda video to fighters from Western China a bunch of children what, of what look like Uyghur backgrounds sitting in a clean classrooms learning about Islam. And that would never happen in Western China. And I think it touches on this question of are these fighters from Western China considering the Islamic State a new home. And in this new home, they're able to offer their children opportunities for religious self-expression they wouldn't have in China. And likewise, in Bahrain, they also are touching on some of the grievances of local Bahrainis in places like Muharraq when they show a video of, let's say, four Bahraini fighters walking in front of a camera talking about how the ruling family in Bahrain has lost legitimacy. That is a really important local narrative for, for, for residents in the Sunni heartland of Bahrain in a place like Muhara. So while they're touching on these local narratives, we are still generalizing the problem to an extent that we're not actually reaching anyone. And I think that is the most important takeaway that I would uh, sort of underscore from this study. On that point, could you say that 
these local grievances, and they're very different from each region and each country, but that the concept of the local grievances being a strong factor in an individual's choice to join ISIS, could it be potentially almost a losing battle in the sense that a lot of these countries, democratic or not, dictator or not, tend not to have their citizens' best interests at choice at times? Yeah, yeah, I think that's, I mean, a lot of work has been done on this failure of governance in the region. And I think that's the other major takeaway here, Chelsea, and that is that, you know, if the findings of the study are further verified and that narrative, that local federal grievance narrative is further sort of underlined by future studies, it suggests that this problem of governance may be more important than we thought. Um, I think there's been a lot of work saying basically that we need to prevent terrorist safe havens and that, you know, governance vacuums create safe havens and we need to prevent that. But what this study may suggest is that vacuums or uh, a lack of governance in certain areas may not just increase the risk of terrorists developing safe havens in those countries. It may increase the risk of a terrorist group developing a safe haven anywhere. Because not only are these places risks for safe havens, they can also be a locus of recruitment of foreign fighters by a terrorist group in a safe haven somewhere else. So I think from a policy standpoint, to me what this says is, you know, first we obviously need to understand that governance is, you know, a huge issue and a major driver of foreign fighter recruitment. And then think about that from a essentially a counterterrorism strategy standpoint. So instead of just thinking about counterterrorism as a way of sort of fighting the disease wherever it is manifest, but it's also preventative measures to prevent such diseases or symptoms of this disease from arising. So I think the second major policy recommendation is to say, you know, we need to do a much better job working with some of these governments to diagnose the problem and then, you know, essentially provide better governance strategies for these governments in, in, in parts of their country where terrorists, such as the places that are indicated in this study, are coming from. And I think, let's just, let me just end by saying, I think Libya is a perfect example of this phenomenon. You know, so the NATO-led intervention in, in Libya overthrows Muammar Gaddafi but then without understanding how important this governance challenge really is in sort of creating recruits for terrorist groups, we did not provide enough resources to the Libyan government uh, in whatever form it was taking during its transitional period to help it overcome some of the major early governance challenges that it faces. And now we see in a place like Libya, in a place like Derna, for example, where the fighting, the average age of the foreign fighters joining from Derna was about 21 or 22, so very young. It suggests to me that the phenomenon of violent Islamic extremism in Derna is a generational problem, and that's so much harder to counterdict than, uh, you know, dealing with this as a relatively new phenomenon, as in, say, Tunisia. But we need to think about this governance problem and underscore its importance and translate that importance into 
institutional capacities to support these bilateral partners much better. Now, are we going to be successful everywhere? No, of course not. I mean, I don't think we're going to create, you know, let's say uh, a huge appetite, uh, you know, with, let's say, China or Russia to work with Western governments to deal with their, you know, Islamic extremist problems in Chechnya and Dagestan or in Xinjiang province. That's going to be hugely challenging and probably also in Libya now, given this sort of current trajectory of the conflict in Libya. But let's say in a place like Tunisia, where eight of the top 20 provinces by volume in the study are in Tunisia. So this fighting problem, this foreign fighter problem in Tunisia is massive. And we have a partner in Tunisia who can work with us. I think that is the kind of place that we need to spend more resources focusing on sort of dealing with this governance challenge. To conclude our talk, if time permits, we like to give our guests a moment to present final thoughts or maybe touch on something that we might not have in the talk. So I will pass the floor on to you. Thanks, Chelsea. I think I've probably talked long enough, but I would just say that I really hope that um, people get a chance to read the study and then, you know, in their own line of work, help provide greater richness and detail to some of the areas that I've either touched on or not in the study um, so that we can understand this problem with a little more context and a little bit more evidence than we have today. Uh, so, for example, um, there is a foreign fighter problem in Macedonia. I don't really touch on it. Of course, there is a European foreign fighter problem, and there are a lot of experts working on that. But I would just encourage people to who are looking at these types of problems, not just to say, you know, Tunisia is the highest origin country per capita of foreign fighters. We need to seek out um, data sets, qualitative or quantitative, that help us understand this problem at a local level. The paper is All Jihad is Local, What ISIS's Files Tell Us About Its Fighters, and I highly recommend you our listeners to check it out for yourselves we will post a link to it with this show and once again thank you so much for coming on the show nate and sharing further insight in this great study my pleasure chelsea thanks for having me